on this edition of the Ministry of Motion Pictures podcast. I mean, in a way, the Coyotes cinema critics had already been doing this, hadn't they? I mean, they'd been, they admired American filmmakers like Hitchcock and Otto Preminger and Wells and Weiler and Hawks, you know, so they were already talking about uh, the Hollywood filmmakers as artists in a way that those directors really weren't spoken about at home. You know, they were considered purveyors of entertainment rather than purveyors of art. That's Dr. Gary Bettinson, a lecturer in film studies from Lancaster University in the UK. And he's here with me to talk about an era of film history that is often overlooked, especially by somebody like me, because this is the era of cinema I grew up in. It's called the New Hollywood Cinema, and it stretches from the late 60s and into the 70s. These were the days before the age of the blockbuster, and it's a very interesting period that made significant contributions to the history of cinema. And you might consider it to be the American response to the French New Wave. The key directors of this period include Sidney Lumet, Richard Donner, Arthur Penn, Martin Scorsese, Hal Ashby, Francis Ford Coppola, Roman Polanski, Steven Spielberg, and even George Lucas. Why is a podcast primarily concerned with Christian filmmaking talking about cinema history? Because Christian filmmakers need to know cinematic history. It's no surprise that some of the most successful filmmakers have the widest knowledge of cinema history. Scorsese, Spielberg, and Tarantino, and I could name many others, these guys are walking cinema historians. Every writer who teaches writing tells their students that the most important thing they can do besides writing is to read widely. The same is true for filmmakers. The most important thing you can do as a filmmaker, besides make movies, is to watch movies. And I don't just mean the new releases. We need to know what other filmmakers have done in other eras outside of our current age. So these folks from the Academy love the cinema as much as I do. And they've devoted themselves to the study of this art form in a way that I haven't. And to be honest, talking with these folks for me is a lot of fun. This is episode... 24. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm a lecturer in film studies at Lancaster University in England. Um, I get to teach a range of different types of film, uh, including New Hollywood, which we're talking about today. Um, I guess, should I tell you, should we specify what we mean by that term? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, well, there's no real consensus on what it denotes as a term. Um, roughly speaking, um, it, critics, historians tend to accept that uh, it describes a period of Hollywood filmmaking from 1967 to 1975 um, with some kind of overspill at both ends. You know, So I say that 1967 with the release of The Graduate and Bonnie and Clyde, uh, inaugurated a new kind of filmmaking um, that came to an end in 75 with Jaws, which ushered in the blockbuster uh, mode of production that pretty much has dominated Hollywood mainstream cinema ever since. Huh, interesting. So Jaws was the, the final straw. According to a lot of historians, yeah. Some people say Star Wars a couple of years later. But certainly yeah. by the mid, mid to late 70s, um, the blockbusters sort of supplanted the more low-budget, countercultural strain of filmmaking that had briefly uh, 
briefly come to prominence in the early 70s and the tail end of the 60s. Well, I think Scorsese has, I think, has quite a bit of difference, judging from his recent comments. Oh, really? What, what did he say? He's been talking about the comic book movies, the superhero franchise films that, you know, are released. Nowadays, I think he said something like, they're not art, um, and that caused, you know, a kind of backlash on social media uh, amongst oh. the fans of those movies, as you'd expect. He wrote a more... He wrote a more detailed, kind of nuanced explanation of his perspective. Uh, yeah, I think he's he's broadly feels that the you know the days of the Ota filmmakers have have pretty much been squeezed out by studio big budget franchise blockbusters um, that are more about commerce than art. They, these are old debates, really, but uh, they resurface periodically. When did he say that? Fairly recently. He wrote an article, I think, for the New York Times, where he elaborates on his position. Tell me a little bit more about this uh, New Hollywood cinema. What was happening before the New Hollywood cinema came in? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, well, the classical studio system collapsed um, after the Paramount Decrees in 1948. This kind of antitrust decree that stipulated that the major studios had to divorce their exhibition concerns and sort of sell up their movie theaters and become effectively producer distributors. Hmm. Um, so that led to a period of recon industrial reconfiguration through the 1950s and 60s and into the early 70s. So it was a quite a sustained period of instability. And... Um, through the 50s and 60s, the studios were exploring ways to regain economic stability, and they were they became more open to new production strategies and new blood, new talent. Um, you know, the, the 60s um, cinema attendance nosedived sharply um, for a number of reasons. There was a steep steep decline in cinema attendance. Partly because of suburbanisation and you know families moving out to the suburbs away from the city centres where the cinemas were located, and obviously the rise of television in the 50s, families would stay home and watch films on television rather than pay to go into the cities, and you know it could be a costly endeavour. Uh, so there was that Hollywood was trying to recover um, the the cinema, you know, theatre-going audience. Um, and they'd lost out, and I think in the 60s, they were really losing out uh, large sections of the audience, particularly particularly the sizable and potentially lucrative youth demographic. You know, the films they were making in the 60s really didn't appeal to young people, teens and early people in their early 20s. Mm. Um, there were very expensive, calamitous flops <laughs> in the 60s, kind of notorious fiascos. Um, so they would make they were making lavish musicals like uh, Paint Your Wagon, uh, <laughs> historical sagas like Cleopatra, um, Mutiny on the Bounty. You know, none of these films really resonated with a young audience, yeah. but, and they cost a really, you know, a huge, vast amount of money, and uh, didn't make sufficient profit. Um, so the studios were floundering, and 
as I say, they became receptive to new talent. And around that time, sort of mid-1960s, there was a new crop of filmmakers emerging. Um, people like Scorsese, um, you know, Woody Allen, uh, Robert Altman, um, Hal Ashby, Spielberg, Lucas, you know, the names that are familiar to us today. Mm. Um, and there's one more thing, the, um, the, the old production code of the 1930s, I think it was established in the 30s, you know, the, the, the censorship system, the Hayes Code, uh, was abolished around 1966. I think it took a couple of years to kind of be phased out. But that's when the rating system came in. And that allowed filmmakers a new kind of permissiveness. Um, they called it the new freedom of the screen. So um, filmmakers could sort of strive for a greater degree of realism uh, because they could depict you know, sexuality and violence in more frank, explicit ways. They could use profanity, so they could try to capture the way that people spoke in real life and so on. Uh, so it's quite a sustained period there of, of uh, you know, industrial change and upheaval. Now, were these films and filmmakers uh, financed by Hollywood or were they more independent that broke onto the scene on their own? Well, they were independent, many of them, but they worked in tandem with the major studios. Uh, so the films would be produced independently very often, um, but then they would be picked up for distribution by, you know, Columbia or Paramount, one of the, one of the major studios. Mm. Um, so they could be produced quite cheaply. I mean, there's an independent production outfit called BBS. They made films like Easy Rider and five easy pieces, uh, the last picture show. Um, they, they made, you know, they had a budget of around a million dollars. I think it was up to a million dollars per film. So they could mm. be made relatively cheaply. They would be distributed by, you know, um, um, one of the majors, I think Columbia uh, distributed Easy Rider. Uh, so they would take, the major studio would take care of the distribution costs. And then these films would, would reap, you know, the, the ones that were commercially successful made a heck of a lot of money. I think the last picture show made about $30 million. You know, it cost $1 million. Mm. Uh, So, you know, these were potentially lucrative. And there was a, was a short window there, a short period of just a few years. Um, some people argue, some critics argue that by 1971, that brief period of dominance you know, where the independent studios, were, the independent companies were kind of um, taking the lead, that that, by 71, it had begun to fizzle out and the films were becoming less commercially uh, successful. So what were some of the, the early films that sort of opened this up? Yeah. Well, as I say, people would generally say 67 was the year that started the new Hollywood. There were a couple, there were precursors around mid-60s, so you, you could point to things like Arthur Penn's Mickey One um, or um, Mike Nichols' film, uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, you know, had more adult themes. Um, it's, you know, tried, tried for a greater degree of verisimilitude, greater degree of re re realism. Um, yeah. But then, 67, you had the sort of um, the one-two punch of The Graduate and Bonnie and Clyde. Um, 
films with a kind of countercultural ethos, um, appealing to the youth market, uh, anti-establishment, anti-authority, anti-achievement, anti-corporation. You know, these sensibilities seem to be uh, uh, appealing, um, particularly to the younger members of the audience at that time. Older critics, you know, were found films like Bonnie and Clyde, uh, Clyde obscene, you know. So it's not clear that the older generation really understood uh, or approved of some of these new, new types of films that suddenly you know, emerged on the scene. Um, yeah. where, where did some of these filmmakers come from? Were they, were they localized? Like I know Scorsese sort of opened up the New York cinematic mm-hmm. scene and then you had uh, uh, Lucas and Spielberg down yeah. in USC. That... No, I think that's where they, they ended up. Uh, you know, the Obviously, Scorsese, Lumet, when uh, Sydney Lumet were New York filmmakers, and they based their production operations there. Um, a lot of Hollywood filmmakers, obviously, working in in Los Angeles. Those, those were the main filmmaking centres. Um, that's actually, incidentally, one of the one of the key appeals, at least for me, of these films is that they conjure a really palpable sense of place. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, many of the films were shot on location. Uh, you know, watching these films as a as a young man, uh, teenager, uh, you know, I'd never been to America, but it felt like I had. They they really, really almost a documentary uh, uh, style um, sensibility, yeah, for say, sure. Kind of rhetoric, yeah, kind of kind of documentary rhetoric that captured. Um, the the texture of of uh, the locations in which these stories were set and you know New York jumps off the screen you know you get a a really palpable vivid sense of that of place and in a way that I think some more recent films sacrifice that kind of quality you know with the rise of CGI and uh, there's a there's a yeah. lack of indexicality if you like a lack of tactility to uh, to some of these mainstream films that we have nowadays I think was I think that was a key appeal certainly to the the realism of the huh. the films of the new it, Hollywood. It sounds like there's some, um, some similarities between this movement and the French New Wave. Very much so, yeah. Well I mean filmmakers I mean Bonnie and Clyde was originally to be directed by Goddard. Oh um and Truffaut was circling it as well. <laughs> before it ended up in the hands of Arthur Penn and Warren Beatty. Um, a lot of new Hollywood filmmakers were directly influenced by it. Uh, not just the French New Wave, but the European art cinema in general of the 50s and 60s. Yeah. Um, so they were really interesting, I think, these new Hollywood filmmakers in fusing influences from, you know, as you say, French New Wave, um, Italian neorealism, you know, uh, yeah. Seeker and Rossellini and uh, Michelangelo Antonioni, you know, these new Hollywood filmmakers studied those directors. And European art cinema was very much um, uh, available in the, in, the, uh, in the 1960s in America. It wasn't really marginal, you know, it became quite central to film culture in America. So they, they fused influence from the European new wave cinema and influenced from classical Hollywood, you know, because they grew up 
uh, you know, in the age of television, as I said before, and they would watch old reruns of classic Hollywood movies. Um, and they would, when they became filmmakers, you know, they called the movie brats. You know, they studied movies, uh, both classical Hollywood movies and, and European art films. When they became filmmakers, they incorporated uh, references and allusions to to classical Hollywood films, and some of them did. Some of the filmmakers did this in a kind of uh, nostalgic, sentimental way. Um, so they would try to recreate and recapture the the genres and styles that they admired as you know youngsters. And some had a more kind of critical um, approach to classic Hollywood and would animate the old genres but then try to subvert the conventions and undermine them right. and you know experiment probe the the limits of those those genres so something like um chinatown or robert altman's uh the long the long goodbye yeah uh cabe and mrs miller you know these films these are films that are considered revisionist films um, right so they owe a debt to the, the classical genres of the you know Forties mm-hmm. and fifties. Now, was this an era where they they that they talk about the personal film being so important? But yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, well, this is also the period in which uh, the auteur theory comes into currency in America. You know, as you know, it was developed by the the Cahiers de Cinema critics yeah. in France, yeah. um, and then it gets imported into America by uh, a number of people, but this is chiefly Andrew Saris. And um, it, 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 it's a slightly, slightly distorted version of the French auteurism, but it, it nevertheless gains currency. So who, who, in, who, is, in America. who is this Andrew? Andrew Saris. Saris. Yeah, it's American Saris, yeah, S-A-R-R-I-S. Along with uh, Pauline Kael, he was one of the most... Uh, prominent film critics oh, of that okay. period. So it, there are others as well, some Stanley Kaufman, there was Bosley Crowther, who was the critic I had in mind when I said, you know, there was a negative reaction to Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, he wrote a famous review of that film, just castigating it, <laughs> and effectively ended his career <laughs> uh, with that review. Um, yes, but Saris, Saris brought the auteur theory to the, to the United States, and um, it fed into, it bled into American film culture and it fed into the film industry itself so that the new directors, the movie brats, self-consciously styled themselves as auteurs, Hmm. as film authors with, you know, distinctive personal signatures and styles and thematic preoccupations. You know, they conceived themselves as um, visionaries, Hmm. artists with... uh, Distinctive body of uh, distinctive personal vision, and tried to carpenter a body of work that would be kind of stylistically and thematically coherent. Wow! So, so Sarius was sort of like the Bazan, I guess, of this mm-hmm. movement. So he was a yeah. he was a critic. That's right. Yeah, okay. So how did, yeah. how did he bring this in? He sort of uh, made it popularized with uh, his his criticism. That's right. Yeah, he uh, he wrote a book. Uh, he wrote an article and then a book, um, and he kind of came up with a taxonomy, a kind of list of film directors 
American film directors who he suggested qualified as auteurs, you know. Mm. I mean, in a way that Coyote's cinema critics had already been doing this, hadn't they? I mean, they'd been, they admired American filmmakers like Hitchcock and Otto Preminger and Wells mm. and Weiler and Hawks, mm. you know, so they were already talking about uh, the Hollywood filmmakers as artists mm. in a way that those directors really weren't spoken about at home. You know, right. they were considered, you know, entertainment uh, you know, purveyors of entertainment rather than purveyors of art. So this lasted maybe a decade. In the New Hollywood, yeah, as I say, there are debates around periodization. Um, some people say that it starts around 67 and goes through the 70s and ends with Apocalypse Now, which was 1979. Mm. Some people say it ends with uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark in 1981, you know, that launches the blockbuster. So there are disagreements, but um, most people, I think, when most film historians, when they write about the new Hollywood, broadly describing 67 to 75, you know, God, uh, Bonnie and Clyde and The Graduate through Jaws. Now, some of the French New Wave filmmakers did make it into this movement, No. Well, you mean as directors? Yeah, because they brought, they did bring some of them over to do a couple films. So I don't know that they signed any. I mean, I mean, Francois Truffaut made Fahrenheit four five one, but I think that was that's not considered a part of the New Hollywood, and it was okay. It, was, it preceded sixty seven, I think, and I don't think it was a. I'm not convinced it was a Hollywood production. I might be wrong about that. Okay. Um, what about Antonioni? Oh, well, uh, no, that's a good point, yeah. So he made the brisky point, didn't he? Um, and, and blow up. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, they're strange because those films, they're generally left out of the new Hollywood canon, canon which is why they didn't jump to mind when you mentioned Oh, okay. Um, but you're right, they, fall, they definitely fall in that period. Um, and he makes a film in 75 called The Passenger. Uh, with Jack Nicholson, and it's a really great film. Uh, so he's he is making he does begin to make English language films. I think Blow Out, Blow Up rather has uh, um, kind of uh, I think has a strong British influence. So I'm not sure about the the, the details behind that production. Um, yeah, it was also in French. No. Yeah, yeah, and it's, it's sort of depicting the swinging sixties, isn't it, in London? So. Yeah. Uh, it, it probably has some some British finance in there somewhere. Yeah. Um, but certainly Goddard didn't come. Truffaut didn't come. Like I say, they were they flirted with Hollywood and they 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 almost made um, Bonnie and Clyde because they were attracted by the idea of making a kind of classic Hollywood genre picture. Hmm. Yeah, you know, cops and robbers. Right. Heist movie. <laughs> yeah. So who are some of the strongest voices in this movement? Well, it's, 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 it's hard to homogenize this movement because there, when the closer you look at it, the more you realize there are different strands to it. Um, I mean, there was, the, there, was the, there, was the, there was a countercultural strain of filmmaking, um, which was, like I said, films like Easy Rider, Five Easy Pieces, typically independent produced, sometimes distributed by a major studio. And those... Directors would be people like Bob Rafelson. Um, he directed Five Easy Pieces, 
uh, the King of, King of Marvin Gardens, um, people like uh, Robert Altman, uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, you know, MASH, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. uh, The Long Goodbye, Arthur Penn directed Bonnie and Clyde, and uh, a film called Night Moves with Gene Hackman. Um, so, in these, they would cast um, the sort of more dynamic, somewhat youthful, new, young actor slash stars. Um, so people like Nicholson, uh, Al Pacino, uh, Jane, Jane Fonda, Faye Dunaway, mm-hmm. Gene Hackman, you know. Um, um, so there was that type of filmmaking. That was really influenced by the European cinema. So uh, they were, critics generally say that they're more character-driven than plot-driven, um, that the characters are kind of unmotivated. They don't have clear-cut goals that they're trying to pursue. So the narratives, as a result, become fairly digressive and meandering because they don't have that kind of forward momentum, that, that propulsive quality that mm-hmm. classical Hollywood films have. They tended to be open-ended um, and downbeat, right? So that was the, the endings would be pretty pessimistic or apocalyptic, and that was the countercultural strain. Hmm. Um, um, but at the same time, there was a strong commercial cinema. Um, you know, the, the studio productions didn't disappear. Um, so there were films like Love Story. You know, and uh, The Godfather, which which I think counts as a personal film, but it's also a major Hollywood production. You know, star-studded, budget, it's an event movie, it's a prestige movie. Um, and then there was the disaster movie, <laughs> the disaster <laughs> genre, uh, Airport, Poseidon Adventure, Towering Inferno. And these were big blockbuster movies and really precursors to the, the blockbuster um, trend that emerged in the late 70s. Right. Uh, yeah, so um, in terms of the, what we think of as the new Hollywood, you know, uh, Hal Ashby would be uh, a major figure. Mm-hmm. Um, he had a pretty remarkable run in the 70s, Harold and Maud, uh, The Last Detail, Being There, Shampoo, um, and uh, people like Brian De Palma. Yeah. Um, Alan J. Pecula made made a uh, I think they call it the paranoia paranoia trilogy paranoid trilogy uh, <laughs> sort of conspiracy thrillers in the seventies um, all the president's men and and um, uh, the parallax view right um, how does Coppola fit in this yeah he's an interesting one. Um, He's sort of like, he is the kind of godfather to the new generation. Mm -hmm. I mean, he'd won an Oscar for best screenplay for Patton before, a few years before, a couple of years before The Godfather. So he was, he was a bit, he had a slight jump on his contemporaries. Mm -hmm. He became, um, you know, a major famous filmmaker before most of the others. And, uh, he, was a filmmaker is very interesting because he does seem to manage to combine the major studio uh, mode of film production with the personal vision. You know, I mean, 
The Godfather 2 feels like, you know, an auteurist film, even though it's a, you've done on this huge canvas. You could say the same with of the Godfather, but then the conversation is a very small, personal, relatively low-budget, intimate drama, the, the sort that probably wouldn't get major studio financing today. Mm. And then at the end of the 70s, he spends a few years making Apocalypse Now, which uh, some people regard as an expression of hubris, you know, um, and as a, as, the, as a kind of symbolic end of the new Hollywood uh, because this is this is an uh, uh, what would you say an kind of embodiment of of uh, self indulgence, you know, of okay. excess, yeah. uh, of production uh, uh, schedules spiraling out of control and production budgets, <laughs> yeah. you know, mushrooming. Um, and that's one of the one of the uh, reasons that critics suggest brings about the downfall of the new Hollywood as a whole in the in the mid to late 70s, a kind of egotism yeah. and hubris, not just Coppola's, but people like Peter Bogdanovich and Lucas and, and Scorsese. I mean, there's another sense in which that term, the movie Bratz, you know, yeah. Bratz being the operative word, they were called that for a reason. Um, that, that, that's a claim of a critic like Peter Biskind, uh, who wrote the book uh, Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, about the 70s New Hollywood film yes. period. Um, yeah. He basically says that that, that that cinema, that type of filmmaking, Im imploded. You know, it was self-destruction on the part of the filmmakers who who um, were sort of brought down by their own. You know, these young Turks were brought down by their own mm. their own inflated sense of self. I know that Coppola talks about how he had to finance a lot of his own films. So even though he mm. was, you know, the 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 Hollywood, uh, you know, star in this thing, uh, he still had a struggle with the system. Right. Yes, I mean, I think that's true. He and Paramount produced um, The Godfather and The Godfather Part Two. He Coppola launched his own production studio, Zoetrope. Yeah. in the 70s as well and that was the company that produced Apocalypse Now and a few other films in the early 80s I think but it was a short-lived company but I think yes if you read accounts of the making of The Godfather he had to fight to cast Brando you know, he had a struggle on his hands to cast Al Pacino because the studios wanted other players so he didn't get things his own way. But I think after The Godfather, which was such a huge commercial success and critical success, brought a lot of credibility and prestige to the studio, won all of the, you know, won several major Oscars. I think that gave him the freedom to make a film like The Conversation and certainly The Godfather 2 as well, which repeated the success of its predecessor, you know, gave him a certain amount of uh, uh, leverage with the studios. Yeah, he was also instrumental in getting Lucas uh, in doing his films. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I understand he's a kind of mentor, uh, uh, you know, to figures like to Luke, figures like Lucas. Yeah, because I remember Lucas talking on an interview with somebody about how he and Coppola were very frustrated with the studio systems. And well, I mean, Lucas is an interesting figure because he starts out making kind of new Hollywood, you know, what we think of as new Hollywood films in the early 70s, like American Graffiti, 
and then he becomes the blockbuster guy, you know. Yeah. And uh, unfairly, perhaps, he's tagged with, um, you know, ushering in a new period of, I mean, this is a false narrative in a way, but, you know, bringing in a new phase of blockbuster filmmaking that's more about commerce than it is about artistic expression. Mm-hmm. Um, because he made Star Wars and, you know, that, that set a whole cycle of fantasy, science fiction, space opera films yeah. in motion. So he's interesting. He kind of straddles both trends, if you like. Scorsese, of all these directors, Scorsese is the one who seems to have the most legs to cross over the whole era. He was sort of an embodiment of that movement, but now he's also sort of maintaining, I guess, some of his sensibilities from that era as well, even though he's more of a uh-huh. Hollywood fixture. Yes, I mean... You know, he starts out, he doesn't start, his first film is not Mean Streets, but that's his sort of breakthrough film. So that was 1973. Um, you know, mobster movie set in New York, um, Harvey Keitel and Robert De Niro. And now we have The Irishman, um, and you have a lot of films in between. But he, it's kind of like harking back to, to his roots. You know, Um, and there's obviously films like Goodfellas in between. He's a very versatile filmmaker, and uh, I guess there are very few genres that he hasn't tried his hand at. You know, Mm -hmm. Uh, pretty much always with interesting results. And this Joker film, which I think he was attached to as producer for a while, but this is a film that's sort of steeped in references to early-ish Scorsese, you know, films like Taxi Driver and uh, The King of Comedy. De Niro's in it, too, of course. Um, yeah, it's trying to be a character study. It doesn't even have a, a nemesis for the joke. It doesn't have a superhero in it, you know. So, um, yeah, it's trying to it's trying to experiment with the genre and offer, offer audiences something different. Now, it's interesting. One of the films you told me that was sort of key, and you've written a number of books or in articles on it, is, is Superman. Yeah, well, that was what, after Star Wars, the year after Star Wars. So by this point, the blockbuster formula had sort of concretized. Um, so it's a return for the major Hollywood studios to family entertainment, I guess you would say. Um, this is one way in which they managed to regain economic stability in the mid to late 70s, the blockbuster uh, mode of production. So films based on pre-established properties, you know, novels or comic books, um, flaunting movie stars and spectacle special effects generating a lot of merchandise, you know, toys and so on, T-shirts, uh, what they call walk, walking billboards, um, all kinds of spin-off product. Um, and, th- you know, Jaws, something like Jaws introduced saturation advertising, where, you know, you would have these 30-second spots on TV, 30-second little trailers for the film um, on, on TV. That was kind of new. And saturation release as well. So I think, again, Jaws opened in uh, what, about 460-ish theaters um, in America. So rather than release a film in one city and then gradually roll it out across the country, this was a principle of saturation release, a system of mass release. So Superman opened in about 700 theaters 
1978. Um, so Superman is very much, you know, working on that model of production, that mode of production. And in terms of uh, ideology, uh, it's a return to conservatism. You know, if you think of the, the countercultural New Hollywood films as being primarily left-wing liberal films, ideologically speaking, something like Superman and Star Wars restores, um, tries to restore faith in, uh, in you know, the family, um, the American dream, um, you know, the American Superman fights for the, the American way, you know, it's kind of trying to reaffirm the, the values of the American dream, those values that American audiences have apparently lost faith in, uh, you know, when in the early 70s, the Watergate era and in the wake of Vietnam and so on. Since Jaws was sort of the first film that brings us out of that movement, what did the the transition from this movement into the new into uh, the blockbuster era look like? Well, like I said, it wasn't a complete break, so it wasn't like the sort of low budget um, countercultural strain of filmmaking just was stopped in its tracks. Um, there was spillover. So it was a gradual transition, but once, so for example, you had films like Taxi Driver in 1976, so it comes after Jaws. You had Raging Bull in 1980, so these films were still being made. You could argue The Deer Hunter falls into that yeah. category as right. well. Uh, that was 78. Um, but, you know, the, the, there was no denying the might of the, uh, the commercial might of the, the Hollywood blockbusters. You had in quick succession, Jaws, Star Wars, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Superman. Uh, I think there was a Star Trek movie around the same time as well, the motion picture. Um, so that, 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 that was all in, in the space of a few years in the, in the late 70s um, because they were so commercially profitable. They just dominated. They just clinched their place at the economic center of Hollywood film production and pretty much it's that mode of filmmaking has stayed there ever since. The comic book movies we have today are just the latest iteration, but they're still based on that principle of, you know, blockbuster production or high concept production. You know, you can convey the plot. Spielberg, I think, has that famous quote, you know, something like, if you, if you can describe the plot of the film in 25 words or less, you know, it, it'll make a movie. You know, you can sum up stories that are easily digestible, right. that are told primarily through special effects and spectacle. Well, that sort of dominates what we're doing today because when you when you read these books on screenwriting and how to develop a film, and it's all focused on these log lines and very simple ways of, of being able to do the elevator pitch real quick. And if you can't elevator pitch it, it's not going to be interesting to a studio or a production company. Yes, I mean, the critics of the, the cinema's the cinema today complain about the formulaic storytelling, you know, the kind of mechanical storytelling. It's rote storytelling. It's like you say, it's based on the, the advice given in the screenplay manuals by the screenwriting gurus, you know, three acts, turning points, character arcs. And the argument is that screenwriters have kind of mechanically, slavishly followed that advice to the extent that a lot of films today structurally are pretty much cookie cut cookie cutter versions you know the same thing um, 
that's a broad brush argument, and I'm not wholly convinced of it. But that's a that's a common complaint that you hear from detractors of you know mainstream uh, Hollywood cinema, the current period, what they call the post-classical period, really, which is from 1975 up to the present. You know, the, the period of cinema that comes after the demise of the classical era. Yeah, the the sentiment uh, that I've heard is that how, that Star Wars destroyed the personal film. And and then what followed was um, the studio system trying to figure out how to repeat the success of Star Wars. And I think uh, the guy who did Easy wrote Easy Rider, Raging Bull, that book. I think he talks about this. The story gurus that we have today were part of that, trying to to figure out what did Lucas get out of Joseph Campbell and how can we uh, put that into a structure or formula to continue making these kinds of blockbusters. And so over the years, the the personal film and these films that were made in the 70s yeah. would never be made today because they would never get past right. uh, a studio uh, evaluation. Yes. Um, I mean, I'm not, I'm not wholly convinced that the personal filmmaking has died away. Um, yeah, and certainly they're not, those types of films are, not as, are no longer as central to... Hollywood mainstream production as they were in the 70s but unless you want some people want to make a case that the current crop of superhero movies qualify as personal expressions I mean some people have made that that claim about the Joker mm. film for instance um, but I think there are filmmakers today working today who, who try to tell personal stories and who take inspiration from the new Hollywood I think they're out there um, do you think do you think Sundance was uh, a response to uh, the the change, this change from uh, the personal film into the blockbuster system? I think so, yes. I mean, that was Robert Redford's brainchild, wasn't it? Uh, to, to try to nurture a, an independent American film system. I think that you can't underestimate the value of that. Um, and there are there are some sort of synergies, I guess, between the American independent cinema of the 90s, you know, which really gathered force, and the, the the films that we're talking about now, you know, the new Hollywood films. There is a kind of lineage there, especially you know, you think of uh, Richard Linklater. He he's very much indebted to the films of Hal Ashby, and especially I think Robert Altman. Um, you know, the narrative structure of something like Slacker owes a debt to uh, the multiple protagonist films of Altman in the 70s, Nashville mm. and so on. Uh, Linklater even made a, a sequel to a new Hollywood film, a belated sequel. He, he uh, made a film called Last Flag Flying a few years ago, which was a sequel to Hal Ashby's uh, The Last Detail. I think David Fincher, a film like Zodiac, harks yeah. back to All the President's Men. Um, Alexander Payne is another one all about Schmidt and Nebraska. You know, employ foreground the actors from the some of the actors from the new Hollywood movies. And, yeah, um, Kenneth Lonergan directed Manchester by the Sea and Margaret and um, right. You Can Count on Me. I mean, these are I think these are personal films mm -hmm. uh, with a new Hollywood flavour. Um, yeah. Paul Thomas Anderson, people talk about him a lot, kind of carrying that tradition forward. I see this new, these new independent films that are very personal coming uh, on platforms like Amazon 
originals and um, on Netflix and those kinds of things. So I think the streaming services have uh, opened up doors into more of an independent personal film. Right, that's interesting. Yes, I think that partly Scorsese's point, I think, in this article that he he uh, wrote recently, uh, is that he's sort of bemoaning the fact that the the tentpole movies, these comic book movies, have have become so dominant. Uh, that they're, they're squeezing out smaller films, independent films, uh, personal films from from the theatres. So that if you want to see those films, you're not likely to, to find them in the movie theatres. You're going to have to find them, you know, as you say, through streaming sites or perhaps in independent art house theatres. Well, Gary, this has been fascinating. I thank you so much for joining me and and sharing your, your knowledge of this. Oh, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. In a future episode, Dr. Bettinson will join us again to talk about another era of cinema that he's very passionate about, and that is the Hong Kong cinema. And that interview is going to be a real treat. If you want to find out more about the new Hollywood cinema, Dr. Bettinson has given me a list of recommended books to read, and I've listed those in the show notes on the website. In our next episode, I've invited Tim Kazee to the podcast. Tim is the host of a very interesting series of documentary DVDs called Dispatches from the Front. I've been watching these for many years. He and his colleagues have, to date, produced 13 DVDs which they distribute on their own, and they're making a significant impact on the church. You don't want to miss this episode. Thank you for joining me on the Ministry of Motion Pictures podcast. You'll find show notes and more information about us at ministryofmotionpictures.org. What we do in life echoes in eternity.